Hey, let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 20. And while you're finding your way to Matthew chapter 20, just want to uh, get us into this chapter. You remember last week we were looking at the 19th chapter, and specifically in that chapter was the account of the rich young ruler who had come to Jesus trying to justify himself and saying, Lord, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus shares with him the commandments, and the young man said, all these things I have done, but what one thing do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you will be mature or perfect, then go sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. And the young man at that point decided not to follow Jesus because Jesus put his finger right on the thing that was really on the, the idol on his heart, and it was his money, it was his wealth. And his disciples, seeing this, were discouraged because the mindset of the day was is that if you were wealthy or rich, that was proof that God was blessing you. And we know that that is not true today because God can bless somebody and they could be dirt poor. Uh, so whether you have money or not makes no difference. But the mindset back then was that if God was blessing me, then, uh, then I would be rich. And if I'm not rich, that means that I'm, I'm not being blessed. Or maybe God is discouraged or unhappy with me for, for some reason. And so that, that is why the disciples would say, if, if this is so, you know, we've, uh, then how can anybody be saved? How can anybody be saved? If even, even the rich, you know, can't get, get, barely, scarcely get through to the kingdom of God, how can the rest of us do it? And, and Jesus said, these things, um, with men, all things are, are, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And then Peter said, we have left all and followed you. And what shall we have? And then Jesus goes on and tells him that not only in this life, you know, for those of you who have left wives and kids and lands and houses, um, you know, not only will you receive a hundredfold in this time, but also in the next time, in the next age, you will also receive et eternal life. And so those rewards that he's speaking of are not only um, uh, temporal, but also the rewards eternal, eternally, eternal rewards. And then Jesus would say at the last part of chapter 19, the very last verse, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look into the first 16 verses of this chapter. And, and before we, um, let's just read it. Notice in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them away into his vineyard. And he went, about, went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go also into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went... <clears throat> And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all the day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when he came to the first, they supposed that they would have received more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained or murmured against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? 
So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Really interesting passage, isn't it? And what I want to share with you is what this parable is not about. This parable is not specifically speaking about rewards, but rather our attitude um, that we should have concerning them in our service to the Lord. You know, a lot of people think, well, we're going to be rewarded. And yes, you will be rewarded. The Bible tells us that, and we will look at this a little bit later. There are rewards for serving Jesus Christ. Not only here and now, but also in the eternal, in the millennial reign and beyond into eternity. There are rewards. And hopefully all of us will see those rewards. But in addition to these attitudes, we'll also be looking at physical and eternal rewards. Who here likes rewards? Raise your hand. It's okay to like rewards. There's no problem with that. But isn't it nice when you're, uh, like for at work, when your peers appreciate what you do? Maybe your boss uh, and your peers, they acknowledge something that you have done or your, your contribution to the job. They acknowledge you in your workplace. It's wonderful when that happens, and, and, I, and it makes the difficulty sometimes of your job, and even the drudgery or the mundanity, there's a new word for you, uh, of your job, it makes it a little easier when you come across these rewards or appreciations as they come your way. But we see rewards all around us. Don't we get rewards when we use our credit cards? I would caution you to be very careful about using your credit card. Pay it off at the end of the month. This is just a friendly advice. It's free, by the way. Pay it off every week or every month, but the rewards that you get, you can use for other things. And my family, we do that well as well. And uh, we also get rewards when we use our TOPS bonus card here in, in, uh, in Monroe County, right? Many stores have reward cards, and you get perks and discounts. And for you ladies, you even get Kohl's cash. Yes, Kohl's. Can I get an amen from the sisters? Ah, Oh, isn't life wonderful? Kohl's cash. And I just got to tell you that I actually was a, a recipient of Kohl's cash. My wife had some extra Kohl's cash, and I went and bought a shirt, you know. And so, really nice. Thank you, honey. Appreciate that. <laughs> Kohl's cash. Yes. But we're, even, even young people, you know, they're rewarded with scholarships and grants and opportunities when they do well in high school or when they do well in college. We're rewarded for doing well in our jobs by receiving raises. Now notice in the title of the message this morning, Great is Your Reward, um, I didn't say great is your reward in heaven. And, and the reason for that is simple because even though the greatest rewards will be in glory or in heaven, there are also rewards that we will receive here and now on earth although that should not be our goal and our focus. Our attitudes toward rewards or a lack thereof is important. Our attitude toward it. And from God's perspective, not all who are first will be first. But rather, as he said, many who are first will be last and the last first. And we will look at that. But notice this passage before us is, is only recorded in Matthew's gospel. You won't find it in the other gospel accounts. And it, this passage, verses 1 through 16, is really built upon uh, two statements from the previous chapter concerning this dialogue that Jesus had with this rich young ruler, how he had went away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to do what God, what Jesus challenged him to do. And so Jesus, remember, spoke to his disciples concerning those who are rich. He said, again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, um, and, and, and if God was blessing, and this was the prevailing thought, as I've already said, if God was blessing, then, then, that was, um, you know, then you'd be rich. And if God wasn't blessing you, you'd be poor. And that was the prevailing thought. So obviously there was a, a disparity there. But the two statements that our passage today is built on are in chapter 19. Look with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. What does it tell us? That Peter, after all of this dialogue, he answered uh, and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? 
Now, I don't believe that Peter was overcome like the rich young ruler was with material possessions, and, and, but there was something that wasn't quite right there. He was looking for rewards just like everybody else. You know, what are we going to, you know, Lord, we've left everything. I've left my wife and my mother-in-law back in Capernaum, and they're, and they're taking care of themselves, and, and, and I'm here, and I'm following you all around, and I'm spending all this time with you. Well, what shall we receive And Jesus offers this, let me suggest, a very light rebuke. But he wasn't upset with Peter, I don't think. But remember what Jesus told them in verse 28 and 29. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, meaning in the millennial reign, which is yet future to us, when Jesus comes back physically to the earth, after his second coming, he will establish his millennial reign, also called the regeneration here. He said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, <clears throat> excuse me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or wife or children or lands for my sake, they shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That's kind of a great deal, wouldn't you say? Getting rewarded now and then getting really rewarded later. I like that. But Jesus said that for those who followed him, they would not only be the physical rewards here on earth, and they may be a little different than what you might think, but there would be rewards in this age, but also eternal life in the next. And the second passage this passage is based upon is what we see in chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus said, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Look down at chapter 20 and verse 16. What is the very last, what does chapter, or um, what does verse 16 tell us at the end of this section? The very same thing. And he even turns it around, and this time he says, so the last will be first, and the first last. And so this whole passage that we're looking up is in context of what Jesus was referring to in answering Peter's question, what shall we have? And there's a lesson here. And so let's go back and look at verse 1. Notice Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. And the landowner here is representative of God who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And we know through other passages in the scripture, Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses, for instance, that Israel is often referred to as the vineyard. Although these designations that I'm making here aren't really the the crux behind this passage, they've been defined for us later, but we really don't need to Uh, say anything more about those, but as long as we understand that the landowner is God. The landowner is God. And in verse 2, he says, Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, and this denarius was a, a normal daily wage for a laborer or a Roman soldier. It was about 16 cents in that day. To us, 16 cents means nothing, but in that day, it was a day's wage. And it was a fair wage. It was a common wage. Notice, he agreed with the laborers for a denarius early in the morning. And they were very comfortable with that. And he sent them into his vineyard. And I want you to notice something, seeing that we've already read these 16 verses. This first group of people in the morning are the only ones that Jesus actually made like a contract with. He, he made it very clear what they were going to get. The rest of them, as we're going to see as we go along, they weren't really given that promise He just said, whatever is fair, whatever is right, I will give to you. And they were content with that. And that's an important fact to see in this. So verse 3, he went out about the third hour. This is about 9 a.m. And saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and notice, whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Notice they didn't come back and ask what their wage would be. They trusted that, he would, that they would be paid and it would be fair. They, just, they didn't really worry about that at all. And again, verse 5, he went out about the 6th and the ninth hour. And this would be noon and 3 p.m. respectively. And he did likewise. And about the 11th hour, which is about 5 p.m., 
toward the close of the day, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, notice again, we saw this in verse 4, but now we see it in verse 7, whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages. Notice, underline this in your Bible, beginning with the last to the first. Notice what the landowner, notice that the landowner, what he, what he did. He started with those who were last first. If the landowner had done the opposite, the men who worked the longest would have not had their heart exposed. By starting with those who had worked the last or worked the least, it would, you know, it, it would expose the hearts of those who had been there from the early morning in the heat of the day. Even though they had agreed on a denarius. Do you follow? And when those, verse 9, and when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they ex- Suppose that they should or would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have only worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. And that's a you know a natural thing to say. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Does it? Does it sound fair to you? No, it really isn't. It isn't fair. But what we're going to see in this passage is that we are all on equal footing in the Lord. Regardless of what we do, who we are, when we come to the Lord, when, you know, however long, it doesn't matter because all at the end of it all, we're going to stand before him. We're going to be the bride of Christ. We're going to be all uh, united and our hearts are going to be changed and, and we're going to be rid of this flesh of ours and comparing one another to one another. We're, gonna, we're not going to be looking at somebody else's ministry and thinking, boy, God must love that person, or why don't I have that ministry? I've got a better attitude and I've got it all together. This person can't even you know, put a paper clip to two sheets of paper. And yet God uses them? I mean, give me a break. And that's what, yeah, what's up, God? <laughs> yeah, what's up, God? <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks, Marilyn, or Madeline, that was good. Yeah, and so, um, so they began to murmur. And I'm going to share something with you that may shock you, but bear with me, please, and hear me out. <laughs> the passage before us shows us that God is not fair. At least, just bear with me, because you're already starting to throw daggers or pick up a knife. What do you mean God's not fair? Of course he's fair. God is the perfect, he's perfect in fairness, he's perfect in everything that he does. However, the world's definition of fair is a little bit different. Because we know that the landowner in this passage is gracious, he's generous. Is God fair according to the world's definition and their expectation of fair? Fair to the world means that everyone gets the same thing and has the same opportunities. Right? That's what the world's definition of fair is. But is life fair? There's a bomb you throw out in the middle of the congregation. Is life fair? Seriously. Why are some dealt a difficult set of circumstances and others seem to sail through life without hardly any hardship? Is that fair? No. There are people that I know who are going through horrendous things that I've never gone through. And, 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 and then there are other people who seem to just kind of slide through life, Christians and unbelievers. They just kind of slide through and you're scratching your head going, Lord, why did you bring me through the depths? Why did you bring me through the valley of death? And these people just seem to be soaring up on the clouds and they never see any adversity. It's just not fair, God. It's not fair. And see, the thing is, is we don't have God's mind. We don't have his understanding. I believe that if we did, we would all just go, oh, now I see. Now I see that you wanted to do something in this life. 
You had a plan for this person's life. It was different from mine. And in order for them to fulfill your will, God, for their life, you had to take them through some serious waters to not only prepare their heart, but also to make them a blessing to others. See, we don't think like God. We always look at each other with these skeptical eyes. And why did you get to do that? Why does he have that? Why does she have that? Why is she pretty and she's not? And then we start getting these nasty attitudes. Even in the church, we do these things. But is life fair? You know, I thank God that salvation is not based on our own merits. In fact, this passage is not about salvation. In fact, if you think about it, salvation is not fair. What? It's not, is it? We deserve punishment. We deserve to die and to be separated from God and hell because of our sins. But Christ, didn't he pay the price that we that we couldn't pay. And then he did something more wonderful. He imputed righteousness to those who believe on his name. That truly is not fair because we deserve worse, much worse. I do. And I think you do too, sorry. Only because the Bible tells us that, not because I know you personally and I'm pointing you out. You deserve worse. You know, it's not like that. But salvation is not fair. Someone else paid the price for us that we couldn't. We didn't even ask. He did it before we even, before we even had the problem of sin. What, what does Revelation 13 tell us? That Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That means before the foundation of the world, before there was sin even in the garden, God already had a backup plan. And he didn't ask us, hey, what do you think about this? He never asked us. He did it because of his great love. But he made salvation available to all who believe in Christ. And God makes sure that all have the ability and the opportunity to choose. And this is not fair from God's perspective because we don't deserve it. But because of his great love, he made it so. But thank God that salvation is available to every human being by God's grace, right? Apart from merit. Regardless of whether we're rich or poor, bond or free, or any other demographic that we might want to throw at it, what does it tell us in John? These are verses you already know. God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave, God the Father gave as a gift his Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish eternally, but have everlasting life. Right? And in Romans, what does it tell us? That if we confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That salvation had to be free. It had to be free from any merit of us. Even a child could do it who has no merit yet. But concerning the world's definition of fair, was it fair for the landowner to give those who worked only one hour the same as those who worked in the heat of the day? Rhetorical question. The first group that worked the longest, and they expressed disappointment. They didn't think it was fair. Was it fair that God chose Isaac? Right? And doesn't the Bible tell us that in Isaac your seed shall be called, he told Abraham. But was it fair that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael? Or was it fair that God chose Jacob instead of Esau? Your seed shall be called, he told Abraham. But was it fair that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael? Or was it fair that God chose Jacob instead of Esau? No, these things aren't fair according to the world's definition of fair. But God knows what he's doing. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love somebody else. Even as Christians, he may have a, a plan for you that's different from the other person. It may not be as glamorous. Maybe your job, like John the Baptist, think of how long his ministry lasted. Only six months, we believe. And yet there are people who serve the Lord from, the, you know, from adults going until, they're, until they die. And what did Jesus say concerning John the Baptist? Of, of men born among women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But the least in the kingdom of God or heaven is greater than he. Well, that'll, that'll twist your mind up in a pretzel, huh? Was it fair that Jesus saved the thief on the cross and told him that he would be with him in paradise that same hour 
Was that fair to all those who had served Christ for many years, who are standing there watching on the cross, sitting and standing there looking, and they're like, we've been serving God all of our life, and you're telling this thief who was condemned when he was put on the cross, on the cross he became a believer, and now you're telling him that he's going to be saved, he's going to be in paradise with you in in about an hour? Oh, yeah. See, that's the grace of God. That's the loving kindness of God. Now, if it's true, and and let me just share this with you as we're going along here. If it's true that Jeffrey Dahmer was saved, and I've heard reports that he was. He got saved, and then he got put in prison, and he was killed in prison. What do you think about that? I know people that have heard that, and if it's true, if it's true, but even if it's not Jeffrey Dahmer, it happens all the time in the world. Horrible people do horrible things, and then they receive Christ, and then they die. And they're like, are you kidding me? He's had a whole life of debauchery, and now he's going to be in heaven? Yeah, that's the, way it, that's the way it works. It's that simple, but yet profound, right? He gave his heart to Christ. If that's true, he got there first. And some people are going to be last. Wasn't the thief given eternal life first, even though the Jewish leaders saw him last? They deemed him worthless and worthy of death. But we have to remember, again, that God is gracious, right? He's compassionate and extremely generous. He's given you, the greatest, you and I the greatest gift that we could never Receive. We, we, we could never, not receive, but we, we could never earn it ourselves, right? So no one will be disappointed with God, with what he gives, and is willing to give in respect to promises and rewards. And this is perhaps the greatest lesson for Peter and the other disciples. So what will Peter and the disciples get? We already looked at it. Not only lands and, and mothers and fathers, but in the, in the life to come, they would inherit eternal life. I would say that's quite a bit. It's almost as if he didn't lose anything but gained a whole lot more, and that's the truth. Because if he, didn't, if he wasn't a believer, he, he wouldn't probably had either. All he would have is what he has on this earth. And wouldn't you agree with me that our time on earth is very short? It, the Bible says it's like, a, like the breath of, a, of an ox. It, it's, like a, just, it, it's almost like it didn't even happen, actually when you compare it to eternity, and yet we spend so much time and energy amassing wealth and holding on to it and our attitude toward it. Perhaps the second thing this passage does is also prepare the disciples for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. See, the church hadn't been formed yet. It happened, remember, on the day of Pentecost. But there would be many Jews who would reject Jesus, and yet they had uh, given their whole lives to serving God in their day by adhering to the law of Moses, didn't they? And many of these Jews, they would reject Christ, but Gentile converts would come, and they would get saved and be admitted into the kingdom of God, while many Jews, by whom the promises came, would, would not be admitted because of their unbelief. So those who agreed to the denarius or for a day's wage are like those Jews who had been given the promises and the law in the Old Testament. And those who agreed to work for whatever is right are like the Gentiles, part of a new body that would be called the church. In Matthew chapter 21, it says something very interesting. Jesus says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. This is Matthew 21, excuse me, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it, and he went. And then he came to the second and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. So the question is, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. What? We are first. 
They should be last. And God is saying, yeah, but you're, you've got all the outward trappings. You've gone through the motions. You've been giving me lip service, but in your heart, you're far from me. You say one thing, but you do another. And these people, in their desperation, deep in their sin, horrible sins, they come to me and they are washed and they are cleaned and they will get into heaven before you whitewash sepulchers. Ouch. That hurts. And you can see why there was so much vehemence, so much hatred against Jesus. He was sticking his finger right on the source of all of their idolatry and their greed and, and who they were. The Jews were first before the church was, was born. But because of Israel's failure, those who would be part of the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, would be first to acknowledge the gospel and have everlasting life in Christ. What does it say in Romans 10? I would encourage you to read Romans 9 through 11, but notice in, this, uh, in Romans 10, verse 19, it says, But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, and, and Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament, I will provoke you to jealousy, Israel, by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, meaning the Gentiles. And I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite and of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in verse 11 of that same chapter, chapter 11, Paul goes on and says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Speaking of Israel and their unbelief, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the rest of the world... And their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. When God brings them into fullness, how much more. And he says, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Isn't that amazing? The Jews were first. God had given to them the oracles of the scriptures. They were Jewish prophets. He gave them the, the things concerning the future even in the church age. He gave it to them. And yet, they were the first. And yet God is saying, they have re rejected me. So I am going to go and I'm going to minister to the Gentiles. And I'm going to create a new body made up of Jew and Gentile called the church, the ecclesia. And they will believe me. They've never heard of me before. They were completely absorbed in their idolatry. But they will listen. They will listen and they will respond. And we all have. Most of us here are Gentiles. In this room, God has answered that, hasn't he? But another possible lesson of this parable is to show that our works don't necessarily affect, don't necessarily affect our salvation. Now bear with me in that phrase, this is sticky. But our works as Christians on this earth, since we have received Christ, will have an effect on the rewards that we may receive in glory after the rapture of the church. So what am I saying? Is our works going to get us saved? No, faith in Christ gets you saved. But once we have become a believer, we also receive award, rewards for what we do in the body, what we've done since we have been in Christ. So it does matter what you do in this life, in, under the blood of Christ, being a child of God, being a born-again believer. Because God, remember, he's a very gracious God. And we know that salvation is given not by works, but by grace through faith, right? That's what it tells us in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, because we would boast. Look at all that I've done. I deserve salvation. God's going, no. It doesn't matter what you do. 
That's not going to determine, determine your salvation, whether you get to heaven or not. Bah, but once we come to Christ, our works are important. Only in the sense that when we are in glory, we will be rewarded for what we have done. Does that make sense? It's important to make that distinction. The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. But don't let the word judgment scare you. In the Greek, it just means bima, the bima seat. Okay? You've heard of that. There's a difference between the bima seat judgment for all believers, because that's where we receive rewards for what we've done, and I'll show this to you in a minute. A big difference between that and the white throne judgment, which is the judgment of the wicked dead before they're sent into outer darkness and the lake of fire forever. Big difference between the two. One is for believers receiving awards. One is for those who have rejected Christ and will spend eternity separated from him. Does that make sense? So remember that I said that another possible lesson in this parable is to show that works don't affect our salvation. And that is true. However, our works, after we come, do matter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said this. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, the word judgment seat is the Greek word bima. It's where uh, Herod, when they would have the, the games there in Caesarea, and they would have the, the, the Roman games there, and, and there's a, um, a circle where they would run the horses. You, you can visit Israel and see it today. And there's a place, they've identified it, where Herod would actually sit, and they called that the bima seat the judgment seat. And he would sit there, and at the end of the games, that's where he would dole out the rewards and the laurel crowns for those who were victors in those games. That's the idea. For we must all appear, notice Paul includes himself in this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice why, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3 gives us a little more information about this, beginning in verse 10, let me just read it to you. Paul says, according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, notice, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, meaning the day of this judgment seat of Christ, after we're home in glory, you got that? We're home in glory, we're going to be, uh, our works are going to be looked at, right? Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. Do you follow? The fire is not testing your body, all right? Your, the fire is going to test the work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So does everybody understand what I'm saying? You are saved by grace through faith and not by our works, but our works show the reality of what we believe in our hearts, and these Works will be scrutinized by the Lord when we are home with him for either a reward or a lack of reward. Now, maybe right now you're thinking, well, I really don't care. I just want to get to heaven. Well, that's okay. But I think when you get to heaven, you're going to want to receive rewards, right? I mean, it's something that we don't have to be consumed about. But I think then it's going to be a bigger deal because if Christ is in us and we want to glorify him, isn't it going to be wonderful to be able to... And the Bible talks about the 24 elders taking off their crowns and casting them before Jesus' feet. Aren't you going to want to be able to, whatever crown you get... Whatever reward you get, aren't you going to want to just in worship saying, Lord, if it weren't for you, none of this would happen. It's all because of you. It always has been nothing but you. It's all about Jesus. I think it's going to be a bigger deal then. Because right now we can be flippant and say, well, it really doesn't matter. As long as I get in there by the skin of my chinny chin chin. And you know... You know what, that, that's okay, but I think we're missing 
I think if, if, if God could just open our mind and give us the moment when this occurs, this, this judgment seat of Christ, I think we're going to be sitting there going, you know what, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm just glad to be here. Don't get me wrong, but I wished I would have allowed him to do a lot more in my life. I wished I would have taken him at his word. I wished I would have stepped out in faith when I cowered in fear. I wished I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. The, you know, it's going to be full. I mean, that can happen to us. But as a believer, our life ought to demonstrate what has happened on the inside. Right? What has happened on the inside? The new birth. Right? Doesn't, doesn't and Paul tell us in Philippians? He says, Now work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So work out what he has put in. That's the idea. If it's in me, then work it out. And those, things, those are the works that we do. Those are the things that we will be scrutinized by, not for salvation, but for rewards or lack thereof of rewards. So now, the things I do in this life do matter, don't they? They really do. It's not like I just got my past to heaven and I can just live like a child of hell for the rest of my time here and go, oh, God, forgive me, and, and then he forgives you, and then you go up. You know, I, I think there's a lot more to it, and I think we can misunderstand and, 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 and not really apprehend that grace and apprehend what is coming. In James, doesn't it tell us? Jesus' half-brother, what does he tell us? In James chapter 2, what is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, this may sound like a contradiction of what I just said, but it's really not. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of them says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed... For the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. And then James says, well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. For as the body without the spirit, he would say at the very last of verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So our works are important. They're not going to get us to glory, but we're going to be given rewards based on those things. So back in verse 13 now in our text. So now the landowner, who we know is God, he, he, he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. By, by, you know, I agreed with you for one denarius, and I've given the guy who only worked an hour, I gave him the same amount. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. And then Jesus said, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And so this final lesson that, that could be obtained from this parable is, is that for us as believers, don't be concerned and, and consumed about rewards at all. But just serve the Lord because he's good and leave the rewards up to him. You know, why, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do them? Do we do it because we want to receive a reward? I mean, there, nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But if, if you continue in that, your heart is doing only things to get something. But are you willing to do something and not receive anything now, here and now? And maybe even not for months or weeks or for years. Maybe you'll not be recompensed at all in this life by something that you do. Not doing it for the sake of the reward. Just doing it because God said to do it. And doing it because he told you to do it. Doing it because it's the right thing, even though it's not very convenient. Can I ask a question? Is doing the right thing convenient all the time? Most of the time, doing the right thing rubs right against the grain of our culture and everybody in it. Oh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Oh, Mr. Holier-than-thou. You know, people give you those kinds of trips. And you're like, no, I'm just doing the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. If you've got somebody in your workplace who's been ripping off the company and you know it and you've kept your mouth shut, you need to go to that person and tell them to shape it up. 
And then the boss gets in the meeting, wow, we're losing all these profits. You know, we're losing a, you know, $100,000 a year and we don't know where, where where's the sieve? What, where's the leak? But leave the rewards up to God. Do what is right and good, regardless of any remuneration here on the earth or in heaven. What does it tell us in Matthew chapter 6? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. All your, the, the, the necessities will be added unto you. Just seek first, notice, the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 6, remember what uh, this wonderful story of worship. I love this. It says that, and this is just before Jesus would, uh, would be uh, crucified. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and a woman came to him having an alabaster flask. We know this person is Mary on the other gospel accounts. And this flask was very costly, fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, and the other, other gospel tells us who it was who was complaining, who do you think it was? Judas. It was Judas. Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But Jesus was aware of it. And he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you don't always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Notice that this genuine worship and service of Mary, she wasn't concerned at all about what she would get. Do you, can you see that? If you read the passage, she is so blown, mind blown. She understood what had happened, the great grace that was given to her. And she, out of the abundance of the thankfulness of her heart, she takes this oil, this alabaster flask full of spikenard or whatever it was, and poured it over him. It was very expensive. And Jesus didn't say, no, don't do that. You can sell that and give it to the poor. No, he said, you go ahead, because this is probably one of the greatest forms of worship I've ever seen. You do it, Mary. I'll receive it. And it will be held to your account. In fact, it's in the word of God. God made sure that we would all read this as a memorial to that act of worship. She wasn't thinking about herself. She wasn't thinking about rewards. She was completely blown away, and she was completely bankrupt and heartbroken and yet joyful of what God had done and what he was going to do in her life. That was enough for her. She's like, I could care less. If I died right now, that would be fine with me. I love him that much. I don't care about the rewards. And see, that's the kind of attitude that we need to have. Just serve and love Christ. Don't worry about the rewards. They'll come and he'll sort all that out, but just have a pure heart in it. And don't worry about any remuneration here or anywhere else. Didn't Jesus tell us also in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 3, he says, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Your Father in heaven who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. When do you think he's going to do that? At the Bema seat. He's going to reward you openly. Nobody in the world saw this. Remember when you're walking on the street and you saw that hypodermic needle on the ground and you didn't want a child, the children were all around and there was a used needle here on, on Clifford Avenue, so you decided to put on your gloves and get out your Wegmans bag, like you know those little doggy bags that the people have when they go take their dog for a while. You go down, you, you pull that thing up and you throw it away. He goes, I remembered that. Nobody saw that. That's just a small thing, but you spared a young child from coming down with something. I saw that. Other-centered. You weren't thinking about yourself at all. This is the way we ought to be. Serve Christ with no care about rewards or accolades. And God also has specific callings for some individuals and some not for others. And there ought to be no competition because we're all on the same team, aren't we? Aren't we on the same team? 
But what does it tell us in Corinthians? Paul says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? Notice, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the increase. So there's no competition. We're both going to be rewarded for the salvation of that soul. But he planted, I watered, or I planted, you know, Apollos watered, but God is the one who did the saving. And yet we're going to get rewarded for it equally. It doesn't matter who brought you to Christ. It's not, you know, people will bring somebody to Christ. And, you know, the TV is there and the cameras are right in your face and the person led them to Christ and there's tears and everything like that. And the person who's been ministering to this person for years is in another town, another state. And they see it on the news. Oh, this guy came to Christ and yes, <laughs> I led him to Christ. And, and yet this person who had been spending days and hours investing in them was really the one who was significant in that person's salvation. You were just the, the closer, <laughs> if I can use it. You were the closer. And yet we think about the closer. We don't think about the others. Like Paul said, you know, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So when we look more at each other instead of looking to the Lord, this is where we run into problems. We need to get our eyes off the horizontal and more on the vertical. Follow me? But we see this competitive spirit even among the disciples. Remember in, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, he went to Galilee, and remember Jesus was speaking to Peter about, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, I love you, Lord. He goes, feed my sheep. Well, it was right after that, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, Peter, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying what death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. But then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know as John, who, was also, who also had leaned on the breast of Jesus at the supper. And he said, Lord, uh, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, um, but Lord, uh, let me see this. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned on his breast at the supper, saying, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? And I love what Jesus said. If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Just follow me. Stop comparing yourselves to him. Stop comparing your ministry. You know, God has a right to choose, to use whoever in whatever way he chooses. And we need to be careful, don't we, not to judge one another, be envious with one another about how God is using that person and he's not using this person the same way, sizing each other's ministry. I remember talking to a well-known pastor not too long ago and we were talking and the first thing out of his mouth was, how big is your church? And I wish I could go back now because I think I would have lied and said something like, well, the first service is 12,000. <laughs> the second and third services are much smaller. They're only like two or 3,000 each. You know, that's, that's it. How about your church? <laughs> Don't want to talk about it now. <laughs> but I mean, really, I mean, well, who cares? <laughs> Let's simply rejoice in the fact that God is good. Right? And that's what really what this parable is all about, is God's goodness. He's, he, it wasn't fair in the world's sense of the word fair, but God was good, and he was gracious. And he has the right to do with what he wants, right? So let's simply rejoice in the fact that he's good. What does the Bible tell us concerning God? God even said this of himself when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. It says in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. Now the Lord is proclaiming this himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. And he goes on and on. Ex exploiting who he really is. And it's not bragging because it's all true. Right? Psalm 18 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Love that about Jesus. Finally, verse 16, back in our text. So the, Lord, so the last now will be first. 
and the, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this last sentence is not included in many of the early manuscripts, meaning, for many are called, but few are chosen. But it does complement what was right before it. And uh, Merrill Unger, uh, a famous Bible scholar, he says, For many believers are called to high and far-reaching service, but few are chosen to be first. Do you see that? Many are called to very prestigious positions, but few are chosen to be first. And I, and I, and I like that idea, that interpretation. They're not chosen to be first in attaining preeminent rewards through unfailing trust in God's sovereign grace. So as I begin to think about this verse, it reminded me of Judas and the Apostle Paul. Even though there's a big difference between the two, Paul was saved, but, the, uh, but Judas was not saved. But Judas was one of the twelve. He was the treasurer of the group. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He spent three and a half years with Jesus. He saw the miracles, was part of Jesus' intimate company, and yet Judas would ultimately be lost and go to hell. And he was ultimately called the son of perdition. And again, this passage is not about salvation, but I bring Judas and Paul into this right now only to show, only to show the order in which these two men came to Christ. Uh, because actually Judas never did come to Christ, but Paul did. But Paul came to faith after Jesus' resurrection. He came to faith after Jesus' resurrection. Paul would even say this of himself. What, what would he say? In 1 Corinthians 15, what did Paul say? I love this attitude. And see, this is a, a really wonderful heart. For I am the least of all the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all. Do you see that? He labored more abundantly than them all, but he didn't see himself as high and mighty. I'm the Apostle Paul. We look at him now and go, wow, Paul is really awesome. Yes, he is awesome because of his heart, attitude toward Christ. And he had a very healthy understanding of who he really was. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Without Christ working in my life, I'm absolutely nothing. But I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. So God doesn't typically use saved men who are famous or great in the world. He doesn't. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. If there's someone who's famous and very extremely wealthy that gets saved in the world, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them, but he may not choose to use them at all. I mean, think of what would happen. I've seen this, and I could mention a name right now, and you would know. But <laughs> there are many. Think of like Elon Musk. You know, If Elon Musk gets saved, guess what? All the churches are begging for him to come to their church. Because one tithe, folks. One tithe. And nobody will have to tithe ever again. You can live off the interest. Right? Not a good attitude to have. And God's like, I, I could save Elon Musk, and hopefully the Lord will get a hold of his life. I would love to see that, actually. But you know what? Leave him alone. Lord, save him, and then let him go into obscurity and really be built up in the faith. And let him get away from all of this. Have somebody else run the thing. And just get away. And don't get on the front cover of, you know, worship magazine. Don't go to the, you know, the different conferences and be the keynote speaker. Hide away and don't tell anybody where you're going. And get alone with Christ and get your heart right. For you see your calling, brethren, this is in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are, which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen those, and the things which are not, to bring 
to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And let me share this with you. Sometimes it is the elderly person who can't leave their house because they are infirm or they're crippled. And sometimes it's them. that They are doing the heavy lifting in prayer. They will be rewarded more than someone who has large ministries. They may be rewarded much more than those who are on TV and in front of everybody's eye. The elderly person who nobody knew in their closet, just being faithful to God. Because they are going to be rewarded. This other guy, he's too busy for me. Ha, ah, but she, he, they've got my ear. And I'm whispering wonderful things to them. How glorious. Why don't we have the worship team come on up as I'm finishing up here. So we may be surprised when we get to heaven because those that we thought would be, have great rewards may get few or none. And others who we didn't even know about or hear their name may receive many. Either way, let's lead lives, right? Where we worship and serve Christ and people. But keep the order right. Serve God and then serve people. And let the Lord decide about the rewards. Don't be concerned about them. Just do the right thing. Just serve the Lord. Just worship him. And I can almost hear Jesus saying to us what he said to Peter long ago on the shores of Galilee after his resurrection, and it was this. If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Right? Kind of puts into balance the whole idea of rewards. Doesn't matter. We're all on equal footing just like these men who received the denarius, the last will be first and the first last. And such it will be in the kingdom of God as well. It doesn't matter when you come. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Just come to the Lord and, and just live for him. Live a life of abandonment to him and forget about everything else. I mean, obviously, you still got to put food on the table. you got to work jobs. But you know what I'm talking about. Don't worry. Don't fret. Just say, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do. I'll do it, Lord. You want me to speak? I'm going to speak. You want me to do this? I'm going to do it. You want me to scrub the toilets in the, in the church or at my, at my job? Nobody else will do it. But I'll do it on my lunch hour. And people are going to see it and go, what? Yes. Scrub. Well, you still got the sandwich in your mouth. You're scrubbing the bowl. <laughs> You know, take that. <laughs> love that. Isn't the love of God so wonderful? Isn't it great what he's doing in your life? Let me tell you, it is great what he's doing in your life, whether you think of it or not. But let's all be challenged this week and just say, Lord, would you just free me of being seen by anybody? Can I just forget about the accolades or forget about what, you know, and, and you've got to guard your heart because other people are going to be seen and they're going to be recognized for something that you did. Is that okay with you? Is it? It may not feel good at the moment, but then, you know, like Paul said, you know what? I don't care who did it. Christ, Christ be glorified. I don't care if somebody else gets the credit for it. We've got to have that same heart. And God will reward you for that heart. Because everyone else, they've got their reward. But what you do in secret, he will reward openly. And it'll be a big deal then. It may not be like a big deal to you now, but it will be then. And then, oh my goodness, can you imagine the tears on your face? Lord, you remembered? You remembered? When that happened... Nobody saw it. I almost forgot about it, but yet you saw it. And now, here in front of everyone, you're going to reward me? How cool. Hey, let's prepare our hearts for communion. As the worship team, as they share with us this song, just come on up. And grab the elements, bring them back to your chair, and we'll take it together. Amen.
Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, just mindful of what these tokens represent. Lord, your body broken for us. Lord, your blood, the very blood of God shed on the cross for our sin. And Lord, what can we say to these things? What can we say to what you have done, Lord? And, and Lord, you're, we don't need to do anything but respond in love and just thank thanksgiving for what you have already done. We can't add to it. We can't subtract to it. We will acknowledge it and we will praise you for it. And so, Lord, as we take these tokens, may we just come into a deeper communion with you. And not only believing you, Jesus, but believing all that you've said in your word, all that you've done, and trusting you to the very end of the age, which we are rapidly approaching. And so, Lord, we take these tokens in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread. His body broken for us. And the same night, remember, he passed around the cup. And Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. A new covenant in his blood. And it would be uh, a covenant. We call it the New Testament. It's a covenant of his blood. But his blood has covered us, not just temporarily like the blood of bulls and goats, but once and for all. Do you understand the significance of that? Once and for all, never to be looked upon again. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions, your sin. You are now white as snow, covered by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? Love it. What a joy, isn't it, to be together? To be together at the end. We are at the end, folks. We're getting very, very close. People have been saying it for a long time, and I get it. And Who knows how long? God only knows. But when I read my Bible and I see the things that are happening, it's all wrapping up and pieces are falling all into place and man thinks he's got it all covered and, God's, and, and they're completely, it's chaos because they have no clue what they're doing. And God knows and he says, don't you worry, church. Don't you worry. I've got you firmly in the palm of my hand. Nothing and no one is going to tear you out of my hand. I've got you and you're mine and no one can touch you except I allow it, and he's got a better plan for us. He's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort one another with these words. Shall we do that? Let's stand together and let's do it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the comfort that we have, Lord, of just knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's an awful comforting thought. Lord, encourage. Lord, my brothers and sisters today, Lord, grab a hold of their lives, mine too, and help us to rededicate our life to you, our devotion to you, our trust in you. And Lord, grant us even greater faith in the days that we live. Lord, we need it. And we ask that you would just fill us Fill us to overflowing and help us to love. When the world around us is hating, Lord, help us to love and grow in that love. And especially to one another, Lord, help us not to be sizing each other up, encouraging one another. Who cares about anything else? We are all on equal footing at the cross. And we are all on equal footing in your kingdom.